everybody, my name's Colin Ellis, author of Culture Fix, Culture Hacks, and The Hybrid Handbook. On the Culture Makers podcast, I ask leaders from around the world to share a little bit of their story and what works well for them in the world of workplace culture. I hope you enjoy today's show. everybody and welcome to another episode of the Culture Makers podcast. Uh, very excited about today's episode. You'll probably hear it in my voice already because I'm talking to a leader who thrives on getting things done. <laughs> Hassana Rosie already laughing. Yeah, uh, hopefully I'm not contradicting anything she's going to say. Actually, I don't enjoy getting things done. So Hassana Rod is the head of people and culture at Bright based in Sydney. But more recently than that, she was named Corporate Talent Leader of the Year, which she's definitely going to talk more about. <laughs> she's got over 20 years people experience in three countries in the public and private sector. Is originally from Manchester in the UK, which we're not going to hold against her. She describes herself as being high energy and passionate, which having met her is a massive understatement. Uh, but I also know she can hold a tune at karaoke. Hassana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for lying about my ability to sing. (laughs) (laughs) We went to karaoke after a HR conference where we'd all been speaking. And that's what we decided was a kind of a good antidote to the day. Well, I didn't. I was trying desperately hard for you all not to go there. But it turns out most of you all could sing. (laughs) I've got like two songs that I sing in karaoke, like Hey Jude by The Beatles and Wonderwall by Oasis. Like, you know, just guaranteed easy to sing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No. Yeah. I think I drank the gin and let you all sing. It was a big jug of gin, wasn't it? I seem to remember. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Oh, my gosh. Words start so so obviously Manchester is home people will be able to hear that in your accent when I had to give you an opportunity to talk kind of growing up there what was your first job did you, you went to university there what did you study yeah so I I innately struggled struggled at school with dyslexia and no matter how hard I worked I could never sort of like hit the grades and things like that um but I'd done uh dancing for years and sort of basically decided right well I'll go and do something along those lines like and so I actually went off to college to do um drama and theatre arts and all of those things so I've actually got an A-level in dance which is like so useful um across all those but I sort of came out the back end of that and realizing a couple of things I quite like money and I was not very good at acting so combining the two I felt I would be like extraordinarily poor for many years because I think you need to have a modicum of talent in the acting field to actually make it. Um, So I spent a bit of time not really knowing what I wanted to do. You know, I ended up, actually, my first job was in a care home. Just I just took a part-time job in a care home, um, an elderly people's care home for a few years. Fell into a job in an insurance company, worked in the office in a garage, a few of those things. Um, And then how I sort of fell into sort of like the people world. I had moved from Manchester um, down to Oxford. And back in those days, because um, <clears throat> I'm very old, so this is all, you know, effectively pre-computers, you walked into the job centre to see what jobs they had. And so I did that and had a chat with a few people. And by the end of the conversation, one of the guys said, do you know there's a job going here, don't you? And that was my first introduction into it. I ended up setting up a, a temp desk inside of the job centre in Oxford 
to sort of like aid some of those things on and sort of stayed with it from there. But yeah, when I was younger, I was like, oh, I'll be a famous actor, I'll be a barrister, but I was also not smart enough to pass any of those things. So you haven't got an Oscar, but you you have got a Corporate Talent Leader of the Year award. We'll get to that. I don't want to I don't want to jump straight to that. I feel like that's going to be the cherry on top of the ice on top of the cake. Um, so, so a couple of things. That, so yeah, firstly about the, I was joking with the kids the other day, you know, the way I got a job is I wrote for one and I got one uh, and I could afford a house, like both things that they have no yeah, right. of doing anymore, which I'm laughing about it uh, because I'm the dad. Um, the, the second thing is about dyslexia. Mm. And it, obviously it's great now that there's way more awareness of just mm. how these things affect mm. our learning abilities. And obviously having been in the people business for years and years and years, that's something that we're way more empathetic, compassionate and about now. It's not a barrier. Whereas in, in, when we were younger, it was such a barrier, wasn't it? Oh, huge. And to be honest with you, I it, it's a weird thing, but I had huge shame around it for many years. Mm. You know, you develop, you know, if you've got some form of sort of like learning difficulty, you develop over time workarounds to it. So, you, you know, you find your way around it. But actually admitting the reason I was spending for ages on a particular document or something on those lines was actually the dyslexia was making me hard to remember how to spell the word the at that particular point was really hard. It was it was only, I would say only about sort of eight years ago, I actually started to go, no, no, this is actually, I do have dyslexia. It's a weird thing, but you actually have shame around it. Normal is the defect mold. So if you're outside of the normal, then there's something with it. And I don't think, hopefully no other people feel like that, but it, yeah, it was a, it's an odd thing. It makes you much more aware of how we operate as a people function and how we actually need to enable people, you know, not just coming into the organizations, but thriving in that when you've got this diversity that comes through and a lot of it is hidden. Mm. A lot of that disability is actually hidden. People don't see it. And we, we talk a lot about diversity, inclusion, equal opportunities, and yet we still, as workplaces, have this image of what an employee looks like in our in our heads. And um, I, remember, I remember speaking to someone at a HR conference and the, it, it was along the lines of, oh, we're an equal opportunities employer. Because you've got to be, haven't you? And I was like, you you, what, what do you mean? Like immediately I started rolling my sleeves up and going, yeah, where's this going? Um, I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? He's like, oh, well, you've got to be. I'm like, well, you know, just because someone's got a disability doesn't undermine their capability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet it's still seen as a bit of a tick box exercise, I think, in, in many organisations. Yeah, and look, it's one thing that everyone forgets is 15% of the world's population is disabled. 15%. Wow. That's a huge amount, yet you don't see a huge amount being done to go, how do we enable people in the workplace? You know, there, there might be, there's some sort of like, there's whitewashing on it and, you know, a little bit of, you know, tick boxing in some levels, but. We really, it's one of those things we need to continue to do better in, I think. Yeah, and it, it can't simply be a policy anymore. It's got to, you know, it's got to be a humanitarian, almost a humanitarian approach to yeah. making sure that we've got a workforce that serves the people that we serve, yeah. essentially. When did, when did you move to New Zealand? Because New Zealand looms large there in your, yeah. on your yeah. LinkedIn profile. So, <laughs> so how did that come about? Oh, well, there's this funny little story about the fact that I never really officially left home. My parents kept leaving me. Not kidding. Like, I... <laughs> When they moved to New Zealand, I'm like, is it something I said? 
everything's a message you need to be sending me here. So the reason I moved down to Oxford is because when we were living up up north, um, my dad got a job down in Oxford. And at the time, this was like, you know, back when, like, you know, all the houses were underwater and everything was, mm. like, you couldn't sell because it would just, you know, you'd still be paying a mortgage. So they um, sort of effectively left me in the house. I sort of nominally rented the house and they moved down to Oxford and they were there for about two years. And in the end, there was a whole heap of stuff and I went, ah, oh, no, I'm just going to move to Oxford. So then I moved down to Oxford. Um, and then about three years later, they moved to New Zealand. So, yeah, I was like, is it me? I mean, really, am I that bad a daughter? Um, it was a bit wild on those lines. But, you know, it, I ended up like having the opportunity to follow follow my parents and my younger sister out to New Zealand. And, and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. I'd never been ever just you know applied for my permanent residency got that through and got on a plane that was and i did 20 years in new zealand so yeah yeah, husband's kiwi kids are kiwi you're firmly established now oh yeah 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 yeah. also new zealand's tiny everybody knows everybody it knows everybody else you know it's like it's one degree of separation generally it totally is like you know every time i go back there i always see someone i know whereas i could go out in the middle of melbourne and not see anybody i know as always someone i know in, in new zealand <laughs> and so did you start working in recruitment straight away was that your kind of pathway to people and culture now yeah so when i um moved out to new zealand um because i sort of set up this temp desk in in the oxford job center and I was dealing a lot with the agencies and they were like, you should do this as a job. You could do this as a job. And I was like, that sounds good. So when I hit New Zealand, I was like, OK, let's try this for size. So, yeah, I spent years and I did. It was a, it, there's a lot of, uh, you know, in terms of the talent base, particularly in recruitment, because it is champagne and razor blades. But it's also addictive because you make a difference to people's lives. Mm. Like everybody, everybody will have that story of that one time with that one person. And then you go, it isn't just that person, it's you actually impacted whole families. In terms of those times you fought for somebody to get a role or, you know, you got them an opportunity and they found their life passion and went on to be successful. I still have great joy of watching LinkedIn every now and again when people update their profiles and I'm like, yes! (laughs) (laughs) I love them. <laughs> so I feel like I've got to ask this question on behalf of everybody listening, right? And I'm not expecting you to have the answer for everybody. But why is it when I apply to a recruitment agency, they never get back to me, Hassan? Why? Why is it just because they're inundated? Are they just got hundreds of applications for jobs all of the no, time? It's you, mate, you're blacklisted. No, I'm not. Sure. <laughs> 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 you know I had an inkling, yeah. Oh, look, look it's, it's the funniest thing because, oh, my God, like hundreds of applications would be quite nice for mostly everybody these mm. days. It's such a talent day. It's, it's horrific and it's going to be like this for four years at least. The reality is is that you tend to find is that um, whether internal or external is that it, it's under-resourced. And, uh, you know, there's a lot, you, you, you know, I'm hate, passionate about HR tech, yeah. huge amount you can do with really good, well-deployed, um, really well-chosen HR tech. And it's like, I'm passionate about it. But if you don't have the physical people with which to do that, you're going to have a problem. So there's an optimum point to it. And then you've got to have them well-trained. Like you've really got to have them well-trained. You know, you can't just, you know, take somebody off the street because everybody thinks recruitment is so easy. And then give them like, you know, a couple of months and they're not like off you go. It That's how it fails. You know, you, you've at the core of it, you've genuinely got to care. Mm. You've actually genuinely got to care. And you'll do the, you know, you'll do the miles. You'll never get it perfectly. Do we all drop balls? Oh, God, yes. When everyone goes, 
we need to fix Kevin's experience. I'm like, yeah, well, let's start admitting by the fact that none of us have got this nailed at all and that we're trying every day to do it better. And was it was it easy to transition because you worked as an external mm-hmm. recruiter and then you went, you definitely went internal mm-hmm. to work for Fletcher's, I think it was. And it, was that in Sydney? In Fletcher's yeah, that was. In Sydney? Yeah, yeah. And was that an easy transition or was it, is it quite different internal to external? Oh, there's differences to it, but it's whether you wanted it. I wanted to go internal um, and I was quite lucky. Uh, my boss at the time, fabulous, fabulous man who I still love to bits and he's still a mentor. Um, he called me up and I was like, this is a great opportunity to go and do this. The aspect of being able to really make a difference because you're really close into the business, you really get that deep knowledge around the business. You, you know, you get to really influence much more than you can do externally is just incredible. But if you don't have or can't develop strong relationship building skills, you're going to have a failure point in there. Also have to come at it from the fact that it, you are a business partner. You're not minion. It isn't a master-servant relationship. You're there to business partner because at the end of the day, a business is predicated on its budget or its EBITDA or whatever its targets look like on the physical people doing said work to make revenue, to make EBITDA. It starts with the people. And the role is, is to bring in really good people and train them and look after them and keep them going in a really good way. So the one thing I had the advantage of was that I did have good relationship skills at that point, you know, scars probably from years <laughs> in the world. But you could develop that, you know, if you can develop that, you'll be highly successful to actually do that. The downside to it is in agency land, you could hire, as Greg Savage puts them, the biker clients, you know, the ones that drive you up the wall, mm-hmm. will try hard to renegotiate the rates, will be a pain in the bum to deal with, will like do the whole thing. They're the biker clients. You can actually say externally, hey, look, thanks ever so much, but I don't think we're for you. I'll recommend you to someone else. Ha ha ha. Bye-bye. Can't really do that internally. So, you know, when you have that challenging hiring manager, you have to find a way to, you know, work with them effectively. And so, and and talent acquisition, I think often people think of talent acquisition just as a a shop, just that, yeah, well, let me, let me put it a different way. I joke about it. Um, when when people get talent acquisition wrong, they're just looking for someone with a pulse because mm-hmm. the planning is so bad that they just need a bum on a seat <laughs> or a person in a field with a, with a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, but talent acquisition done well really has a strong influence on the evolution of of workplace culture, right? Yeah. It's about hiring people who share the same values, who you see as contributing, and that's where that business partnership comes in. Because yeah. you're almost like a, a bit of a sieve, are you, for for people to make sure that you hire, you know, people who will contribute? Is that is that fair? Yeah, it's it's a filter and a bar, a high bar. So it should also it should filter people to knowing that you're bringing people in that will be as successful as you can possibly make them inside the organisation. You and they've got great skills with which that you want to add them in, and then it's a bar that's there's a round culture add. Yeah, so you you want smart people, you want people with good IQs and good EQs, but you also don't want well, you know, the brilliant jerks. Yeah, you don't want them, which also means that you know uh, you you've also got to have teams that are strong enough to have those conversations where it sort of pops up at some point in the interviewing process, and a you know a hiring you know um, panel or you know hiring managers are all like. Oh, Oh yeah, but it, but they've got this, and it's like yeah, and these were the other warning signs. Yeah, but they can do this, and it's like yeah, and they'll destroy your teams. 
Mm. Don't do that. And so you've got to be able to have that push and pull around it. And during that process is also a good time when you could actually deal with people having um, an aspect underneath it that is sitting around like a a bias they don't know sitting in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I spoke to someone and in the first season of the podcast, I spoke to someone from Zappos and, and they said that the head of talent or the head of HR or head of people, whatever they call, they had the final say on recruitment because I'd had a question, oh, but can you spot brilliant jerks at an interview? And I said, well, you, you can, but often it's not the hiring manager that spots them. And that's, you almost need that level of independence to sort of sit down and go, here's a thing that I've spotted and you're just going to have to trust me because often people get blinded by people's technical ability and yes. not necessarily the emotional ability, right? Oh, absolutely. And look, I do know some organizations where they, where they do allow the hiring managers to have ultimate decision on who they hire. There's a pro and a con to it it's a time and a place for each of the organizations so some of those sit there but personally i get it and sometimes it's done because you have too many like should we say wonky decisions being made or there's a lack of trust the other end of it is like well you employ adults in an organization and you pay your leaders to be leaders and ultimately they're the person making that choice whoever it is at the end of the day they're the person going i made that choice for good and bad it's on them and if you think they're making bad decisions then well give them better education about how to make good decisions there's a bit for me where i'm like ah oh, it just doesn't necessarily sit well but then it depends on the organization you're in and at the point in time it's such a good point because i may have mentioned this before on another podcast that that we're not very good at you know organizations want lots of leaders but we're not very good at training them how to become leaders and that's just another great example of the bit that's missing you know they don't know how to set expectations very well they don't know how to performance manage people and they don't know how to hire people in a way that contributes to culture and 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 you know you've done kind of talent roles mm. you yeah, you went to nbn after fletchers uh, you worked in government for a while mm-hmm. Sana, I, I imagine you you probably saw there was probably a common theme there around management or leadership development i would have thought oh yeah um generally crappy leadership is is get spotted eventually yeah sometimes you know i refer to it as the fact that you know organizations will have organ rejection but it's an eventually piece yeah sometimes some organizations will move fast some of them move quite slow and a lot of damage is done on there it's the difficulty organizations have to go this is what good leadership looks like and this is how we help everybody else to get there and actually support people through it that's a challenge yeah. You know, if you think about most people in their careers, if you said the day, you know, the day you stepped into leadership role, how much training do you have as a leader? Most people are going to go, well, no, it's not like there's maybe there should be, but there's not like a pre-leadership course. You know, it's like before you step into leadership, you can do a lot of things. But until you're there on that first day and how you you know operate is a lot down to how somebody might, you know, approach it from a certain viewpoint. So a lot can go wrong, but a lot can go right if you give the right support. And then the other iteration that gets forgotten about is when people start being leaders of leaders. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that that's actually quite hard. I do remember when I went into, yeah, government and it was, it was a huge team. There was 90 plus in that team. So it was like, biggest I'd ever managed you know and I had a small like you know freak out about that and I rang one of my mentors and I went am I overreaching here 
I mean, tell me bluntly. And he was always very straight about it. And I said, look, you know, this is this is big. I'm leading leaders and leaders and leaders because there's like, you know, I've got TAMs and then I've got team leaders under that. And it's like, you know, how do I do this well? <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, look, Sammy, you're a good leader. You know what good leadership looks like. Why do you think this looks any different? And I went, Oh yeah, good point. Um, but he did, he did also give me another piece of advice, which was very wise, which is don't have too many long fingers. Yeah, so it's like don't trip, you know, don't go reaching down into the organisation without and chopping the legs off your leaders underneath you. Mm. That's not a cool thing to do. It's like you know, you lead through them. You're leading leaders for them to lead, which is sometimes quite hard. But it's those things. Yeah, that's good advice. I'm just thinking as well in the summary for this podcast is like Hassan Rudd talks about long fingers and organ <laughs> rejection. Um, <laughs> I like to keep it visual for people. Right? <laughs> it's, it's full of metaphors, you know, let's, let's keep it real, Hassana. Um, And then, you, so you joined Squiz and a global head of talent. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in in Squiz. So there's an organization maybe 20 years old, something like that. And, yeah. and kind of the role that you had, um, presumably in the time that you were there, it was about scaling culture as well. So, you know, interested in the dynamics of your previous role within government into, yeah. into this kind of, you know, youngish uh, organization. What was that like? Oh, look, I, I loved that one. I absolutely did. It's, uh, yeah, it's a 20-year-old um, organization still privately held in those areas, but it was fully into tech, which is where I wanted to go. And, you know, I was insanely lucky. You know, I had a you know fantastic boss, Helen Comerford. She's absolutely amazing and a really great team with which to work with, like this tiny little you know, people and talent team to it and the global reach to it. Um, and look, you were doing everything on the smell of, you know, smell of an oily rag. You were having to get creative about how you did things. For me, it was great because it stretched me right across into much more of the people and culture based roles and work, mm-hmm. at which time I realized that I had to ring a few people back and apologize to them. Namely, namely some chief HR officers who over the, my years had said to me, you really need to go into pe- people and culture. You need to go into, you know, into PHC management. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I spend my life with people and culture. Have you any idea what they do? Why would I want to do that? This is awful <laughs> stuff, you know. And uh, so I had to ring back and apologize, which was the fact that I realized that a lot of what you're doing is around the coaching with the leadership. Yes, there was those times where you're having to sit in with people having really hard conversations, like really hard conversations. That's there. But the rest of it is around that coaching and that guidance and that, you know, chance to, you know, for people to come and bounce with you, um, which was really cool. But I also got freedom, um, you know, to experiment with lots of things. I managed to convince people to do some really interesting things um, because they were open to new ways of doing things and sort of scaling it up. And, you know, working globally was fantastic. Um, mm. It was some very long days occasionally. Lots of organizations would say, lots of people would say, oh, we don't have freedom to experiment which i always challenge it's, it's about understanding priorities right and it's about mm-hmm. recognizing where you have the time to do stuff and it's about then creating the space for, for creative ideas and presumably that's something you agree with oh yeah completely it doesn't stop you being creative around that it doesn't stop you innovating around that but you've got to understand what the business problem is you're trying to solve for so if you hang it to that you're way laughing. You know, you shouldn't just sit there and go, oh, well, this is how the one thing I can't stand more than anything is, oh, well, we've always done it like this. It's like fingers on a blackboard to me. Like saying, well, so the business just stopped and didn't move from like the 7th of March. 
course it did. But you'll also have strategies out there which you can hang the people stuff off. So if you tie it into that, of course you can try things. And generally, you know, particularly within tech, it's around like, it is around like sprints and continuous improvements and, you know, how you do, you know, you put like agile balls together and how you run agile and how you do retros and like where you can bring in Lean Six Sigma. So if you talk the language of the business and you try some of these things and you make it enough that if you, you're not going to do too much damage, right? So you should like have something where you could scale it quick if it works, but also turn it off, bury it, and never talk of it again if it doesn't work. Mm. I'm joking about never talking about it. You need to talk about it. But if you do little bits of that, something occasionally not everything's going to work, and that's okay. But you can get the odd one where it's like, yes, scale it up. Oh, and also try and make the leaders look up. But you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that too. Yeah. But and 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 the things that that fail or don't go so well, it's about extracting the learning from those and then extracting the learning from the stuff that goes well as well and saying, okay, well, here's a bit of a blueprint of things that that we can do in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to keep that together. But you also to have an innovative com- culture, you've got to have people who are comfortable with vulnerability mm-hmm. and trying things because there's nothing more vulnerable than trying something new. Yeah, because the fear of failure and the fear of the shame around that is enormous and very human. So, you know, I'd always encourage, you know, anyone in a leadership role ever to talk about the things that they've done and it all fecked up, basically, and it all went wrong. Um, and you don't have to go, oh, and then I turned it around like this. No, be honest about sometimes we do stuff and it doesn't go right. I still would, you know what I'd like, Colin? I want failure conference i want a failure conference with like senior leaders and they come and talk about the stuff that just went wrong because it makes it human and it makes it safe to try things love it i'll tell you what i'll put it together it might not come off but at least we'll extract the learning from it for the next one um (laughs) so now listen i always knew you'd end up in a people and culture role uh not least because you're great with people and your initials are HR. Um, but I, I knew you would get there. So here we are at Bright. You've been at Bright eight months. Tell me tell me about the award. Oh. Tell, tell me about the award. Yeah, apparently there's even actually like a physical award. No way. No, seriously, there is. Um, um, and I never win anything ever, like ever. Um, so when these came round and, you, you know, your applications go in and, you know, you, you go, yeah, I'm never going to win that. <laughs> <laughs> no way. There's absolutely no way. So it generally was absolutely stunning. I think what was sad for the guys is that, you know, they had this whole thing organised, so it was going to be a big gala again, event, you know, black tie and, you know, the whole thing. And, of course, like Omicron, like knackered that up for everybody. It'll happen again in September, which will be, you know, which will be really nice. But that was actually genuinely stunning. Hmm. And of course, you know, and I'm always keen to say, and you'll echo this, is awards don't mean that you've got all the answers. Awards generally mean that you've done a couple of things, but you still got a bunch to figure out, right? Yeah, constantly. And this is it. There's no blueprints either. You know, I think sometimes where we go wrong is we go from organization to organization or change roles and we go, oh, well, I've done this before. I'm going to take this blueprint and overlay it onto this situation or this it's not the case. Never the case. Like each place has got its own difficulties and opportunities for improvement, shall we say, in there that you need to uncover and really dig down to and then find a solution that's right for that. Sure, you can have some extra learnings go, oh, hang on, this is similar to something I did in the past. I can do this. But the other part to it is you might not, but somebody else in the network might reach out, ask people. Most people will help. That's right. 
Yeah. So, so Brian, I've got a, I've got a question to ask you about Brian, and I'm going to let you go and get on with your day. So, mission on a mission to make every home sustainable. That's the yeah. mission of the organization. I guess my last question is, in, you know, kind of what's your advice for anybody that's looking to bring the mission to life, to live their vision on a daily basis? You know, I see lots of organizations that have these long mission statements. I think Bright's fantastic, nice and short. Like even I could remember it, nice and short, yeah. memorable. In your experience, what's the best way to to bring that vision to life Sana. okay the, the simplistic aspect of you've got to walk the talk mm-hmm. yeah it, it's no point having um you know mission statements or visions on a wall if nobody's actually walking the talk you know the old thing of the behavior you walk past is the behavior that becomes your culture is is really true to those levels and also what you dial up as an organization and what you do um I will give you, I will be really honest here. It's like, because we are on like huge hypergrowth. The organization's amazing. It's it's populated with the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life, which makes me feel like the most stupid person on a regular, which is not unusual, right? But also the most human and humble and really like really passionate about what we're doing and what we're actually making those changes to that, you know, people could take those roles in any other tech company, but when you are the say you change the world, so, you know, so you've got a real tie to to those organisations, but you've also then got we're on hypergrowth. You know, we, you know, it's January last year we were eighty staff. Fast forward a year, we're two ten and growing. You know, so the numbers are going up, and we're continuing to add new people in. And at the same time, you've also go how do you scale culture? You know, because there's a there's a core around right that is just like so passionate and so exciting and that how we operate together but it's also how do you scale culture so here's the thing i got this off an exec coach um uh who's an amazing executive coach i've known her for years and years and years and i was talking to her last week around this and i was like you know how's a good way of doing this you know and she said every culture has got one three things or one you know there's three things or rituals or something that our organization does that makes it what it is as a culture she said if you find those three things and you make sure they're replicated your culture scales and i was like that's fantastic that's fantastic i love that so it's sort of like making sure you've got those pieces together to actually scale it up but yeah culture wise it's it's a really it's a caring and sharing organization there's passion around it there's incredible pace around it and the people you work with are amazing so i'm extraordinarily lucky and again like you know I've been through a few, but my God, my boss, Kirsten's amazing. Mm. You know, our CEO and founder's amazing. Like, you know, the, the people I've got within the people team are incredible. So I'm very lucky. I can't complain. Uh, well, look, as they say, is earned Hassana. Um, I feel like I'd speak to you for another half an hour. I have to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Uh, it has been so great to have you on the Culture Makers podcast. And I'm sure it's not the last award that you'll win. I think I promise to take you out karaoke. So maybe I could win Best Singer and then donate it to you. Hassana, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Culture Makers podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Colin. so much for listening to today's podcast if you've enjoyed the show please share the link with colleagues and friends or your connections on social media better still why not keep the conversation going and join our community of culture makers for free share information from around the world on how to create a great place to work you can join us at www.culturemakers.community